I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at Hudson Institute, and I'm delighted to uh, introduce our very distinguished guest for what should be a very interesting, and as I think you'll find out, even far-ranging discussion. Uh, this is an event done through the Center for American Sea Power here at Hudson. Um, and uh, one of our interests uh, here is not just on American sea power, but on sea power and on the ways in which both theory and practice tend to converge or diverge uh, in uh, how these things work. I'm just going to shut this machine off for a second, and then I'll be right with you. Being very uncooperative. Yeah, in fact, that's probably a good idea for everybody. Shut them down. That's why I did that, by the way. It wasn't my... I didn't overlook it. It's a little trick I've learned doing these events. Um, our guest, Rear Admiral Christopher Perry, uh, Royal Navy, retired. Um, he is today very well known as a strategic forecaster, uh, as a broadcaster, as a best-selling author. Uh, but uh, his uh, fame and celebrity comes from his service uh, in the Royal Navy, where he spent 36 years as an aviator and warfare officer. Uh, he commanded the destroyer HMS Gloucester, the amphibious assault ship HMS Fearless, the UK's amphibious task group, and the Maritime Warfare Center. So this is someone who speaks about the theory and practice of sea warfare and of sea power uh, from uh, a range of experiences from at the high end of strategic level thinking all the way down to command on the deck of a ship, uh, as well as command on the, uh, in a helicopter, uh, as well as experience regular operational tours and combat operations in Northern Ireland, in the Persian Gulf, and in the Falklands. Uh, where he was mentioned in dispatches for his part in rescuing uh, 16 uh, SAS members uh, from a glacier in South Georgia and the disabling of the Argentine submarine Santa Fe. Um, nowadays, he runs his own strategic forecasting company, advising governments, leading commercial companies and banks about strategic issues, high-level leadership, systemic risk, all the kinds of points at which, in which economic and strategic interests intersect and helping to analyze and understand how those risks play out in our new, modern, globalized economy and a globalized world. He's the founding chair of the UK's Marine Management Organization. He's an internationally recognized authority on existing and emerging aspects of the marine and maritime warfare environment. And that's one of the subjects we're going to be talking to about him today. And he's also president of a rugby league club. Which one? Uh, well, it's called Portsmouth Navy Seahawks. There we go. Portsmouth Navy Seahawks. Yeah. There we go. In addition to those accomplishments, Admiral Perry is also the author of two books. The first one, 
uh, down south, Falkland's War Diary, which we have up here on display here, published in 2013, and then uh, Superhighway. Sea Power in the 21st Century, which just came out in March 2014. Is that right? Um, I thought what we would do, however, is start by talking about the past, uh, the recent past, the Falklands War, uh, a subject which uh, I've had the uh, privilege to write about in my own book on the Brit history of the British Navy, to rule the waves, uh, to interview and talk to many of the main participants in that conflict. It's one which I think at the time we have to remind ourselves in 1982 when Great Britain took on the uh, task of retaking the Falkland Islands from Argentine military which had illegally invaded and occupied uh, the, the islands, that this was an operation that our U.S. Navy pronounced impossible given the distances and logistical nightmares that went with it. Uh, as well as the size and proportion of the for forces involved. It was one that America's leading intelligence communities pronounced impossible, and the Royal Navy managed, as it often does, to accomplish the impossible. You were there. You served in it. You saw it firsthand. Tell us about both what the experience was like, but also how you now, and we're talking 30 years on, how we learn the, the lessons from, from that conflict and from Britain's involvement in it. Arthur, thanks very much. If, if I could start by saying thank you very much indeed for inviting me today and to all of you for, for coming. It's always a pleasure to come to the Hudson and I very much admire what it does in the public space to keep the issue of sea power right uppermost in uh, the minds of Americans and world opinion as well. Uh, and I think uh, a country that has two massive coastlines onto the Atlantic and the Pacific uh, if it neglects its sea power, it will lose its soul. Um, and I'm quite happy to say that to anybody and everybody I meet. Um, so let me, let me start, if I may, by saying it's Trafalgar Day today, uh, which we celebrate in the United Kingdom, uh, victory over the French. Always good to beat the French. Um, that's why I joined the Royal Navy. Um, I'm, disappointingly, they've become our friends now. Um, uh, but I'd also like to say we had uh, 38 Americans fighting uh, for Britain on the day, so you can give yourselves a pat on the back as well. Uh, Trafalgar Day today. Uh, so there we go. Uh, and what I also, if I may, Arthur, what I'll do is just orientate people and just show you some pictures essentially about. Ooh. <laughs> there we go. Um, there's the book. Um, the ship I served in was a, a, a destroyer, uh, HMS Antrim. You can see it at the top. And the helicopter uh, was a Wessex 3 helicopter, obviously a Sikorsky S 59 derivative, um, <laughs> single engine helicopter. Um, and if I tell you that um, the impossible issues associated with the Falklands were not so much the Argentinians, uh, but the weather, uh, the sea, uh, and the general environment down there, one in, one in three of the days that we experienced down there um, were force eight or greater uh, at sea. So um, that was the issue for us. Um, one of the reasons I, I published my diary, it's something that I, I kept for myself, uh, was because of this. I, I read uh, accounts of the Falklands, and I would honestly say to you, that 95% of the accounts that I read, of the bits that I was involved in, uh, were so distorted uh, that I never bothered reading the rest of the book. Um, so I wanted to put in place something that was a contemporaneous record that could be used in, in the future, perhaps. Uh, but also, 
my captain had died, and I had some critical things to say in my diary about my captain, and it was convenient at that time to let, let it out into the public space. Um, that's the ship. Um, that's actually uh, Antrim, um, a guided missile destroyer built in uh, the 1970s, but designed in the 1960s to take on uh, Soviet Sverdlov class cruisers. Good luck with that. Um, and as you can see, quite good lines. Um, and its essential armament was a 4.5-inch twin gun at the front, uh, four Exocet missile launchers, you can see on the B gun deck, SeaCat um, close-range missiles out to five miles uh, either side of the, uh, um, the after funnel, and a massive sea slug launcher, essentially a V2 rocket going at twice the speed of sound. Um, and... Uh, it, the magazine ran the whole length of the ship, and it was probably the best train set in the world to put 38 missiles around the ship uh, all day. And it had a helicopter in which I served. Um, there you can see that the flight deck um, and the missile launcher on the back, massive contraption. There is no coincidence, by the way, it was called Sea Slug, because it actually reflected its sort of capability. It was great for taking down Boeing 707s, but not so great at taking down fighter aircraft. Um, and the helicopter, as you can see, sat on the flight deck. The hangar is round to port. That's the left-hand side, ladies. Um, and uh, you actually had to push that helicopter into the hangar physically. Um, so in a seaway, that's quite interesting. There's a helicopter, <coughs> essentially anti-submarine helicopter with a sonar that came out of the bottom on the end of a 230-foot piece of wire. Radar in the hump just uh, after the uh, engine combing, as you can see, able to load lift. Couldn't do sonar boys or anything like that. Very basic aircraft. Very good sonar, though, detecting submarines in good conditions out to about three and a half miles. Um, but actually, uh, not a bad helicopter, and it looked after me in the Falklands. Um, that's the team. Um, one of the few times I've ever had a beard in the Navy. Uh, the reason I had a beard is uh, we were at Gibraltar when the Falklands crisis started, and we had a beard-growing competition. And... Um, I got superstitious in the end. I didn't want to shave it off in case uh, it gave God ideas about me. But there's the aircraft at the front, and as you can see, uh, a maintenance team uh, with the aircraft uh, in the background. And don't we look typical 80s? All those shoulder patches. There we go. Uh, just to remind you, as Arthur said, it's a real long way <laughs> from Great Britain uh, to the Falklands. And when um, Sir Henry Leach, our first sea lord, went to see Margaret Thatcher after the Argentinians invaded, she said, I want you to get some ships there. And first of all, um, Margaret Thatcher said, well, I want, first of all, I want you to send the Ark Royal. And um, Henry Leach sort of, sort of looked very uncomfortable and said, well, we can't. And Margaret Thatcher said, you don't say can't to a prime minister, a sea lord. And he said, you can't, prime minister. And she, and she said, why not? And he said, you scrapped it three years ago. That, that, so that was the first indication the politicians weren't entirely in tune. And she said, I want you to get something there in three days. And he said, you can't, Prime Minister. You've done it again, First Sea Lord. He said, it takes three and a half weeks to get to the Falklands. And even our politicians thought, I'm afraid, the Falklands were somewhere off the Orkneys or Shetland Islands uh, up into the Arctic Ocean. They, they weren't really aware that it was the Antarctic. But as you can see, without our far-flung um, empire in Ascension Island and Gibraltar, this would have been very difficult indeed. Uh, and right now, Ascension Island is crucial for our reinforcement of the Falklands. And I'll just point out South Georgia, which is 1,000 miles to the southeast of the Falkland Islands, 
on the edge of Antarctica, and believe me, it is bleak there. Uh, and that's the first operation we undertook in South Georgia to take that back from the Argentinians. Not just because we thought it was a good thing to do to show that we meant business, but secondly, it's got the finest natural harbour in the whole of the South Atlantic, bar none, in Cumberland Bay. Absolutely superb. So had we had to overwinter uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, that would have been the fleet base for our operations uh, against the Falklands. Um, the Falklands themselves, everybody forgets how big the Falklands are. They think they're just sort of some group of rocks in the South Atlantic. Just look at the scale on the bottom. You can see how many miles across these islands are. They are actually the size of Wales. Um, that probably doesn't mean much to Americans, but it's actually quite, quite large. Um, you know, it's at least a quarter of the United Kingdom in terms of it. Um, and again, uh, pretty demanding terrain. That's South Georgia. It spends most of its time as a floating ice cube. Um, uh, but sometimes you get a break. But look at Cumberland Bay on the northeast coast. The capital Gritviken population, <coughs> 48,000 seals uh, and three people and the British Antarctic Survey normally. Uh, but a, a long island, as you can see, and famous for the island that Shackleton escaped to from the Antarctic in 1916 uh, and made his way across the very glacier where we had to rescue the SAS. Um, that's Fortuna Glacier on the day in which we put the SAS up on the glacier, way beyond the cloud line, up into those mountains. They wanted to go there. We didn't. The result was that we lost two of the helicopters, and we had to uh, rescue them and their crews. That's a picture taken with the SAS coming out saying, didn't enjoy the film or the in-flight service, um, and one of the crashed helicopters. Um, that's one of the crews uh, up on the glacier. You can see the conditions. And that's everybody happy back on the uh, uh, ship after we managed to rescue both the crews and the 16 SAS men. They're the ones in white, by the way. Um, uh, the other thing we did at South Georgia was disable, well, detect and disable the Argentinian uh, submarine Santa Fe, which interfered with our operations. It's the ex-USS Catfish, by the way. Uh, Guppy class did one war patrol uh, in World War II, but we got you in the end. And uh, so there it is. By the way, the, the Belgrano, the cruiser, is the ex-USS Phoenix, and it was the only major ship to escape from Pearl Harbor. It was going down. Right. And that is the engagement with the submarine. Slight artistic license from the, the artist, but if you imagine a submarine with its fin just on the surface, it was diving, uh, and slightly worse visibility, that, that was how we, we destroyed the submarine. Um, we're also involved in uh, the landings at San Carlos Water. As you can see, it was quite uh, rigorous. You can see the bomb splashes amongst the ships. You can see HMS Ardent having been bombed. You can see the gun sight camera there. We were, <coughs> we were on patrol, anti-air defense there, as you can see. And there is San Carlos Water. Um, that's us doing naval gunfire support uh, in support of our troops going ashore. Um, that's us doing air patrol inside uh, San Carlos. That is us being attacked by two Argentine A4s. You can see the strafing, and there's the aircraft. You can see how low they are. Um, that is us just having been strafed. You can see the helicopters on deck. Uh, it's full of holes at this point, and all the fuel is flooding over the, the deck. That's why we've got foam on the deck. Um, and you can see me going, we didn't join for this. Um, on the middle of the flight deck. That's what a 30mm cannon does to uh, a piece of armour, uh, as you can see. 
And that's some of the damage that we sustained when uh, we were strafed by an Argentine A4. That's the missile system going off. As you can see, it's a blowtorch, and I may tell you an anecdote about that uh, in a minute, but just take a look at the scale of this. It is a V2 rocket going off. We used it as a bird scarer. It was never going to hit in the aircraft, but we thought that if we fired it in the general direction, they'd say we don't want to go near that ship. Um, and in the end, we got bombed by a Mirage coming in at very low level, about 30 feet. It dropped one of these on us, a thousand pound bomb. Um, it was made in Derby in England, this bomb, uh, and it didn't explode. So whenever I go to Derby now, <laughs> I always thank the good people of Derby for their shoddy workmanship. So, it's a, um, so it went through eight bulkheads, this bomb, before it landed in Jeez. the afterheads and destroyed all the porcelain. Um, anyway, um, and it went through, believe it or not, the flash door of the magazine. As you can see, there's the hole just behind the launcher as the launcher was pointing towards the aircraft that was attacking us. So it went down the only angle it could have done without vaporizing the ship, because it would have hit the missiles or gone in the magazine, would have been in trouble. In the end, we lifted it out uh, through cutting a hole in the flight deck while it was all going on around us. And you see good old uh, seamanship skills to get the shear legs to lift it over the side. Lifted it over the side. 10 minutes later, we got a signal from our fleet headquarters saying, on no account, move the bomb. <laughs> it, it had gone. Um, happily, the aircraft survived uh, the Falklands. We patched it up again. We flew it again, actually. It's now in a museum in the United Kingdom. I couldn't bear to see it go to the scrap heap, so we arranged to get a museum. Ship came, came home happily as well, uh, and it was all good fun, to tell you the truth. So, anyway, my experience of the Falklands. What I take from the Falklands today is that you go with what you've got. Um, we do not have the industrial capacity to force generate uh, the men, skills, or materiel to fight the sort of war we had in World War II. And a lot of our opponents know what's in our locker. They know what they have to deplete uh, before they get to the bottom of that locker. The second thing I learned is that uh, training and maintaining resources for training is everything. Everything I've described to you uh, was a realistic version of what I'd done in training, with the additional adrenaline flowing because obviously there's obviously a bit of stuff going on. Um, but what we mustn't forget is that for 20-year-olds, this is immensely good fun. It really is good stuff. You get up every morning doing something worthwhile for your service and your country. You do not think about the future. You just revert to what your training, both collective and personal, has allowed you, and you say, I'm as good, okay, as I want to be today. Very important. Um, but if you don't have the resources for training, there's a problem. I'll give you one example. Some of our Marines who went ashore uh, in the Falklands had never experienced a grenade. They had never, ever had a grenade explode near them. In the whole of their careers, even some of the NCOs had never seen a grenade explode. So the first time they saw a grenade, okay, it was in combat. That is unacceptable. Um, similarly, missile firings and things like that, unacceptable. And I think the other thing I take away from it is that we accept things in peacetime uh, which we would never go to war with. I'll give you an example. The CCAP missile uh, on, our, on our ships, universally known to be useless. Um, and on the way down to the Falklands, our weapon engineers were saying, well, it's okay against first and second generation jets. And we're saying, but the Argentinians have got first and second generation jets, so why are they so useless? 
Um, and it wasn't very good. Uh, and we found that Seawolf, our new automatic missile system, actually worked pretty well. Um, but as the latitude increased coming home, suddenly all our systems were very good again in people's estimation. And we found that the reports were being written up to say, well, actually, CCAT didn't do too badly. Um, and I'm afraid to say there is a, a conspiracy of silence in peacetime about whether you would take stuff to war or not. Now, if you won't take stuff to war, you shouldn't be fitting it, you shouldn't be putting it uh, up with it, and you shouldn't be reporting to Congress that actually, you know what, it's all right. The current level of provision and the technical specification is okay. If it isn't, you should say so, because you will kill your young people. Uh, and I would say to you that HMS Sheffield, the first ship that was uh, sunk by an Exocet, was totally and utterly unprepared tactically, and we can talk about that, uh, but also in material terms, was not fit to face the enemy. Um, that ship originally was procured to be the best anti-missile and anti-aircraft destroyer in the world. By the time it came into service, it was a pale reflection of what it had pl been planned to be. But the ship that was sent down to Falklands was that first one, the one that had been planned in people's minds. But because of cost, time and specification reductions, the ship that was sent down was Sheffield. I commanded Gloucester, which actually was the ship Sheffield should have been, because Gloucester was the uh, penultimate one that was produced in that class after the Falklands. Uh, and so we put up with a lot of things in peacetime. You do in the United States Navy as well, which you would never dream of going to war, war with. It's all in the shop window, but actually should not be with you in wartime. Let me pause there. There's a lot of other things, but we can perhaps bring well, let me that. I'm going to come right to that point, uh, and that is... What you're basically sort of saying is, is that if you're senior military, star flag rank, you have, it's incumbent upon you, you have a responsibility to tell the truth about the resources that you have in peacetime to civilian leaders. As you know, the political pressures to do the opposite are intense, even overwhelming. How do you tread that fine line between telling the truth in those situations in ways that will raise not just, let's say, a president's or a national security council or a defense secretary's attention, awareness of what's happened, but maybe even public awareness, without crossing the line and finding yourself then uh, taking your pink slip and, and, un uh, and loading up your desk. Um, you will not make chief of naval operations in this country. You will not make first sea lord in the United Kingdom if you tell the truth. It's as simple as that. Um, I'm afraid that... Um, in the United States, the, I think every senior military officer has a responsibility by law to be engaged in the political process. Samuel Huntington wrote a very good essay on the fact that American military officers are part of the political process. We don't see it like that in the United Kingdom. We think they should be separate. However, that doesn't mean that senior military officers shouldn't be part of the public discourse. They're accountable public servants, and they should be able to say, short of resignation, we can't deal with this. Because if you take your country or you take your service to war, you have to give assurance to the politicians that you can actually do the job or you shouldn't be there. Um, I'm going to say something controversial now, um, I think. Um, Unlike everything else that he's brought up until now. And uh, I think the United Kingdom did you a really good favor in saying you shouldn't go to war in Syria. Because you'd have lost a lot of people, I think, had you gone to war. United Kingdom uh, looked at it, as you know. Public opinion said, you know, we're not going down that route. The dog in the fight is not worth it. 
Initially, we got a lot of hassle, of course, from your Secretary of State, who said, uh, here, here we are with our oldest ally, the French, for crying out loud. It, true, technically true, your oldest ally. But you were Brits at the time, actually. Um, but um, it, um, and that hurt us, actually, when you said that, because we've stood by you, <coughs> and you've stood by us uh, over many years. Um, but in fact, I'm glad to say that our role as your conscience sometimes, I think, played you very well at that point. You did not want to get your finger in the mangle of Syria at that point. Um, and indeed, the point I'm trying to make here is your military was saying that too. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs was saying everything short of we don't want to go to war in Syria. We don't want to do pinpricks. We don't want to do this. There is no strategy. And I think he did a great job, actually. Um, now, we've come a long way from um, Jackie Fisher before the First World War, who was always writing to the Times. He was threatening, for example, to make cabinet officers, uh, cabinet, uh, cabinet ministers' wives into widows and their homes into dunghills if he didn't get four battle cruisers. Um, that sort of language, of course, is not popular on the Hill um, <laughs> and, um, and is unlikely to be so in the future. But I think that there has to be space in the public discourse for these people. If the Treasury Secretary is allowed to speak, in relation to the things she uh, is responsible for, the military officers at that level have to as well. It is their constitutional duty in my country and yours to say, we can't do this without fear of their careers. Now, <laughs> it could be worse. If you go back to pre-war Japan, <laughs> it, it wasn't a question of unpopular views getting you dismissed. It was getting you assassinated, <laughs> which was the thing then, of course. Um, so it could be worse. But the fact of life is, in, in democracies, we have to have a better way of the military being able to give advice and also let it be known to, let's face it, a much more public discourse, especially with an internet generation, uh, that actually something isn't right. Um, in your own case, I would bring up the literal combat ship, which has been a complete disaster. Um, in terms of modular construction and capability, you're not getting bangs for your buck at all. Um, I think. People are getting it now, but it's taken a lot of people to come out and say, we got this wrong from the start, we're now going to put it right, they're going to be war-fighting frigates in their second batch. But the whole thing's been a complete disaster. Um, and yet, you've had the example of the Danes producing modular ships in the 80s, learning their lessons, producing very, very good modular ships now, and yet there are no lessons there. Incidentally, we're technically at war, the United States and UK, because you put warships onto the Great Lakes in contravention of the Treaty of Paris, 1783, because they were built on the Great Lakes, half that class, the Freedom class. Okay, just so you know. Well, in one sense, the literal, literal combat ship has been a success. You know, Lockheed Martin has just signed a deal with the Saudis to sell about $12 billion worth of those. So, uh, from a certain standpoint, you can sort of say it's been, uh, it's been, been stellar. Um, sure. Technologies, yeah. war, maritime technologies. As I pointed out in To Rule the Waves, uh, the war in the Falklands was the first computerized war, the first computerized, uh, digitized, uh, guided uh, missile, precision guided munitions war uh, that anyone had ever fought before. Uh, and part of the lack of preparation of ships such as the Sheffield was just they had moved into unknown territory from the kinds of munitions being used, the ways in which uh, 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 situations would have to be judged solely from a computer screen that sometimes told you <laughs> what was happening and sometimes didn't. Um, 
from that point of view, the Falklands War was a big learning experience for the United States as well. We got to a, a, for, a forecast of what was going to happen with similar naval engagements. As you look ahead now, uh, and as these kinds of technologies that we saw employed in the Falklands have now matured, and we now push the envelope into other new directions, uh, supersonic, even hypersonic, uh, anti-ship missiles uh, into the area of um, unmanned systems, including undersea, uh, undersea, unmanned undersea vehicles. Um, where do you see the stress points coming for, Amer for let's say, I was going to say the world's navies, but let's, let's get focused for the United States Navy and for its allies in the area of the new technolo emerging technologies in the, in the maritime sphere? Okay, let, let's, let's take as a point of reference the Falklands. One of the key issues in the Falklands was keeping our aircraft carriers out of harm's way because without being able to generate the, the air power to actually do ground attack and also uh, fleet defense, we wouldn't have been able to conduct that operation the way we did. And the first thing I would say, I think, in the modern world is uh, we have problems with what I call visibility and vulnerability. Practically everything at sea now is visible. Um, I conducted an exercise about two months ago in a conference where I said, where is HMS Bulwark now? And nobody knew. Um, within five minutes using Google Earth uh, and also some cameras uh, that were being used uh, in, in, in a webcam, or a weather webcam, we actually had a visual image of HMS Bulwark operating off Sicily. Five minutes using commercial software, freely available. If you pay for it, you can get even better definition. Uh, and so in this day and age, it's very difficult to use the sea as we used to as a great place to hide. You can't do that anymore. There is one place you can hide, and that is under the sea still. There's no question about that. Um, and you talk about hypersonic, um, you talk about unmanned and all these other things. It makes all our surface platforms now increasingly vulnerable. The other thing that concerns me very much is the cost of defense versus attack. If you look at the relative cost of a Chinese or Russian surface-to-surface -surface missile, it's about a sixth of the price it takes to shoot it down right now. And until we get railgun and uh, directed energy technology, that cost ratio is going to stay up there. Yeah. And that is a real problem for uh, countries that seek to establish sea control for certain times and certain places, not universally, and gives a real advantage to sea denial and sea uh, and access denial countries. I mean, you, you know who we're talking about. Um, and you see that actually, of course, they're loading up with that type of missile system, both cruise and ballistic missile system. Um, the thing that, that uh, strikes me about the current environment is the fact that we're not going to have vast fleet actions for the foreseeable future, if the future is foreseeable. Um, we're going to have encounter actions. So uh, a ship will turn up, it'll be confronted by something, air, land, subsurface, sea. Uh, and it'll have to be able to go in harm's way with the confidence that politicians can say, this is here to enforce our will. And if it doesn't, it will get either get sunk or it will have to slink away and policy will collapse. Let's look at the South and East China Sea. We know um, that the United States Navy is about to actually say, this is freedom of navigation country. We're going to assert our right under international maritime law to be able to sail ships past anything you like, particularly illegally built constructions on the Spratly and Paracels Islands. 
well, you better be strong enough in case there is an encounter action that occurs there. Because in the past, the Chinese have actually had encounter actions with the Vietnamese and the Filipinos, and it has led to a shooting incident. So we have to be very careful in those situations that we do that. Your second point, Arthur, about unmanned. We're getting into an era now where confrontation will be conducted initially by unmanned vehicles. So therefore, the political risk is very low. Because if we lose a global hawk over the South China Sea, hey, it's money, and of course it generates income for the manufacturer. Or the Turks shoot down a drone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, over the desert. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I've been in action unwittingly with the Turks. They didn't know it, but they were shooting at me. But uh, it's, it, they are like that. It's, um, if you're the sick man of Europe, it always happens. It's, um, but the, the issue is that our, our level of confrontation is going to be pushed away by these unmanned systems, except in one area. I think with the development of underwater unmanned vehicles, uh, you're going to have the ability to have these things cruising around the oceans for months at a time on very low power, able to deploy sensors and occasionally weapons. Now, what happens if we have a whole shoal of these in the areas operated by our ballistic missile submarines? Because the first thing that could happen is that a ballistic missile submarine captain will hear clang as one of these things hits his hull. It immediately surfaces and says, look what I've got down here. I have a ballistic missile submarine. I believe that the subsurface is going to become increasingly opaque over the next 10 to 20 years, and that submariners, up until now, have had their way by operating in a stealth environment, are going to find themselves seriously disadvantaged, not just by sensors, but active mobile mines. They used to be called submarines, mm -hmm. and they will be unmanned vehicles that will be able to deploy weapons underwater and all sorts of sensors too. Uh, and if I was going to put my money into any technology, that would be the one yeah. that will alter. Because for the foreseeable future, because of this visibility and vulnerability issue, you're either going to have to operate your surface ships from bastions that you can defend, um, or you're going to have to put quite a lot of your systems underwater in future. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why those undersea mines, just what you're talking about, is one of the systems specifically listed in what we now call the third offset mm. strategy the U.S. Navy has uh, launched, uh, and the way in which this will change the under-surface maritime environment for navies around the world is going to be uh, tremendous. If you, if you look at what DARPA's working on at the moment, upward-falling payloads, I have to say only America could come up with that phrase, upward-falling payloads. Okay, It's not something we would, we would recognize in the UK. Um, essentially, these are bottom-laid packages of capabilities, sensors and weapons that will sit on the seabed in an area of interest and will only be activated when you need them. Very interesting international law applications with that, but actually fantastically uh, promising, I think, in terms of what you might want to do. Um, but these whole issue of mines, of active torpedoes, all these other things, they're going to be festooning uh, the, the high seas in future. Let's talk about some specific uh, countries. Um, it seems that every half century or so, another country discovers sea power. <laughs> um, the Germans, in, uh, just prior to World War I, uh, the Russians... Uh, during the Cold War, remember Admiral Gorshkov suddenly deciding that Russia needed to be not a land-based military power, but now had to 
grow, uh, enormously expand its, its maritime capacity, fighting capacity. Now we've China seems to be the one who's reading Mahan and absorbing the lessons about sea power. Um, how do you assess the way in which the, uh, the PLAN has evolved, where it's going, uh, and where both where its real strengths are, but also where its vulnerabilities are uh, in, the, in, in the next next decade. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting pathology, the rise of, uh, of course, for China, of course, it's rediscovering sea power. If you look back into the 15th century under Zheng Ho, uh, you had 300 sort of Chinese war junks, uh, eight times the size of the Santa Maria, um, just cruising around the Asia Pacific. And um, I think, Oddly enough, I, although the Chinese do say to me they read Mahan, I think they read Mackinder even more. Mm. Um, they believe in the idea of Eurasia. And their current understanding with Russia, I think, is aligned to that. Quite a lot of the literature I'm reading with, with, with China at the moment in their own language rather than what they give us in translation um, has a number of themes. One is the, the idea that, the, that Eurasia is at the heart of their economic and strategic policy. Um, and you've seen that with the Silk Roads that they're building on land and by sea to connect them with Europe, with Russia, with anything ending in Stan. But I think for this audience, the thing that we should recognize is a constant theme in Chinese literature right now, and it's appearing in Russian literature, that they wish to de-Americanize the world and its institutions. And you're seeing that not just in strategic terms, but in terms of some of these financial things that they're setting up in direct opposition to the World Bank, the IMF, the Trans-Pacific and the Transatlantic Economic Partnerships. And you're seeing the Asia Investment Bank, you're seeing the BRICS Bank, you're seeing an investment in the Silk Roads four and a half times the size of the Marshall Plan after the end of World War II in roads, railways, uh, infrastructure and oil and, and gas pipelines. That is significant. Uh, so. Mackinder seems to rule here, because if you <laughs> rule the heartland, which is Eurasia, uh, and you're able to suppress uh, Rimland, uh, as it's known, then you will rule the world, is what Mackinder said. Now, what I, what I do see is I think the world is breaking down into two blocks now, and it's what I call Eurasia, of course, Russia, China, and as many friends as they can get together, and there's a, a thing to do with uh, the Middle East on this, and secondly, the maritime world. Uh, and I think you are seeing... Uh, a coalescence of what I would call loosely the Anglosphere. That's Canada, America, parts of Europe, um, Japan, um, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and India to play for, I would suggest. Um, because all the antipathies and all the interests put together give you that sort of binary system in the world today. Now, getting on to the meat of the, the, the question, what's China's role in that? China recognizes what Mackinder has said, that unless, of course, the Eurasian uh, power can actually suppress Rimland, um, it won't prevail because maritime powers with their fingers on the pulse of globalization, which is the sea, of course, um, always are able to dominate the connections between markets, um, uh, factories, uh, and commodities. And, of course, the additional bonus of the huge amount of energy uh, and other resources that exist at sea, particularly on the high seas in the global commons at the moment. So China's, China's main play uh, in, in strategic terms, I believe, is Eurasia uh, and Central Asia and the routes through to the Middle East, Europe. And it, I think it also seeks to be able to blunt uh, 
um, the effect of sea power on that in that respect. And a clue to that is that when the Chinese Permanent Pollen Bureau went for an away weekend about a year ago, they studied two things. One was uh, what is the best way for a rising power to take on a status quo power, but they also studied uh, the Mackinder-Mahan issue with those names mentioned at the time. So that tells you which way they seem to be operating at the moment. Now, onto your second bit, Arthur, we have a growing navy at the moment. We have um, what I call a pre-Turpitz, in German terms, type navy uh, in China at the moment. But what we shouldn't underestimate, I think, is the fact that it's, it's been nice to see you again. Uh, it's, um, they're growing it as a joint capability. Um, yeah. And in terms of modernization, they are integrating their air surface, um, air, land, um, uh, sea, cyber and space together as part of a joint strategy. It, it's going in, in sort of episodes. It's not going in a, in a smooth path at all at the moment. But where it is concentrating on at the moment is one of the key um, priorities of the Politburo, and that is this desire for sovereignty. And in actually creating that sovereign space, it's this Asian hub that has been talked about for some time, the expansion of territoriality into the South and East China Seas and the Yellow Sea, uh, but also this idea that there is a strategic defense space out to the second island chain uh, as well, and that lies right at the heart. But the key point is uh, this territoriality issue. The, the Chinese see the South and East China Sea as Chinese land covered with salt water. And that, therein lies the difference between what they do now and what they signed up to as part of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Quite right. <clears throat> what it also means is that what you're suggesting is, is, that, the, is that the current military doctrine of anti-access, access denial isn't just the first stage towards a more expansionist view of Chinese sea power uh, and then the evolution, the inevitable evolution of China into, into a maritime power, but rather that that is the end all because that is what protects uh, the Eurasian landmass. Uh, and the Rimland, to use Mackinder language, Mackinder lingo, that this then becomes the point of struggle between your Eurasian powers, China and Russia, and the maritime powers, including Anglosphere, Japan, and I would argue, I think also, I would also India. I guess my own feeling is I don't see India quite up for grabs, maybe South Korea possibly, but, uh, but in any case, um, that what we're gonna see then is, is a China that's willing to sort of go to the second island chain and hold. I, th I think what it's based on, if you look back at Zheng Ho, if you look at the voyages of Zheng Ho, if you're familiar with it, in 1421, uh, what it subsisted of was a huge tribute-based system in Asia, right. uh, which the fleets regularly visited to make sure trade was flowing properly and the local rulers were coerced properly. Uh, and in response, they, they got gifts and things like that. But it also protected routes to the Gulf, uh, to Africa, uh, and uh, Southeast Asia as well. Uh, and I see that reforming now. If you look at 60% of Chinese outward investment goes into that same hub. Uh, the bulk of the Chinese diaspora lives in that area. Um, and you've got these routes to the Middle East, um, to Africa, and of course now beyond to South America uh, and across the Pacific as well. So you're seeing the 15th century reemerge again in terms of their strategic doctrine. Uh, it's a trade, uh, and I said to you beforehand, Arthur, you know, I, I challenged the Chinese a couple of years ago about this, 
And I said, look, it's the East India Company in reverse. And they said, hmm, could be. And if you look at the way they're buying up um, shares in, in ports around the world, Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, Rotterdam, Piraeus, they're beginning to look like treaty ports that we had in China in the 19th century, Hong Kong, uh, Jingdao, and places like that. So you know, they, they study history and they look at it. And the key problem for us is that their maritime strategy is intensely integrated. Yes. Because they have a state-based system, they're able to integrate finance, insurance, shipbuilding, um, research, uh, and all the other things that we used to do, we the Brits, in the 18th century. It, it needs looking at. If you want to, I hate to do a plug, but if you want a, a bigger exposition of this, it's, it's in there. Um, so, so, yeah. Let's talk about the Renew book for, for a minute. Um, superhighway. Superhighway, usually we think about this in terms of the information superhighway, the net, cyberspace. By the way, there's another point, again, where the Chinese, the cyber strategy integrated into a sure. larger economic as well as military strategy and, and, and perspective. Um, why did you, ch why choose the term superhighway mm -hmm. here in talking about the maritime sphere when it usually applies here in the sure. realm of the cybersphere? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's an intellectual conceit to tell you the truth. There's a couple of paragraphs on, on why I think, uh, if one thinks of, um, the, the sea being the physical equivalent of the World Wide Web. Everything that goes digitally, actually, really, in real life, goes across or above the sea. And so there's a really neat confluence there between the two. And bear in mind also, most of the cables that carry the internet worldwide, of course, go across the sea. They're sub, su submarine cables. So there's a real analogy between the f physical and the virtual. And if you wish to lose your hold on globalization, You'll allow the internet to be closed down by certain countries. Uh, you won't actually operate against cyber terrorists and privateers. Um, it's the same in the sea. If you allow the sea and your access to it to be broken down, you lose your grip uh, on, on globalization. And isn't it strange that the very countries that want to close down the use of the internet for their citizens are the same that those who want to close down the use of the sea uh, for innocent passage and global world trade? Because being no doubt, China wants to make the South and East China Seas extensions of China. In future, you will go, if we're not careful, uh, into those seas, courtesy of the Chinese, some sort of traffic control system. And if we want to operate like that, we turn over 400 years of history and global free trade. And the Russians are doing the same, by the way, in the Arctic. Yes, they are. Um, as the ice recedes, they're not saying our territorial seas go out to 12 miles. We reserve a right to extend it beyond 12 miles, which is why when Greenpeace get on one of our, our rigs uh, between 12 and 200 miles, we get upset about it. The Russians. Yeah, yeah, the Russian. I'm sorry, I was. The I, we, I, I, I could we. say it in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. So we've got to be careful. You know, the, the, the freedoms that we've enjoyed and exploited for the last 400 years are under serious threat from countries that think they can exploit it better in their parts of the world. Um, and if, as I said, if you want to go beyond Singapore in 20 years' time, we need to maintain those freedoms. You mentioned rigs, and I'm sure in the book you talk about the relationship between uh, maritime sphere, free access, and free, freedom of movement, and access to energy sources. You have to admit it's, an, it's a strange irony that 30 years after the Falklands War, 
which was seen as being fought for purely symbolic reasons, namely Britain holding on to one of its last colonies of a, of a fast diminishing empire, that it now turns out the Falklands, in fact, was sitting on a large, I won't say enormous, but a large reserve of both oil and natural gas that are now going to enrich the Falklanders uh, beyond anyone's dreams. I mean, every sheep on the islands will be able to afford a chiropractor <laughs> by the time Noble Energy has finished, uh, finished opening up those resources. Which is, by the way, again, one of the reasons why the, uh, uh, the Argentinians are in such a frost about that. Such a missed opportunity from their point of view here and why they're so furious about what's happening there now. Sure. I mean, we shouldn't forget also, I have to say, I've got to declare an interest here. I have shares in a, uh, an oil company that is operating around the Falklands, but uh, let me say I, I, I did that a while ago. And as I'm a strategic forecaster, I actually have to obviously follow some of my own advice occasionally. Um, but um, uh, yes, it's really interesting. But we shouldn't forget also that Argentina has vast amounts of gas. Um, they've got much more than Qatar has, and Qatar reckons it's got 300 years worth of natural gas. So, so the real problem is not so much them bitching with us over whether they want the stuff around the Falklands, is they are going to have a hell of a lot of energy too. And they will not be going around in tin pot destroyers and uh, re refurbished F-16s. They will be able to afford significant combat power in future, and that's going to present a problem uh, for our government if we're going to deter and defeat any threat to, to the Falklands. Um, just, just on the issue of you know, the, the decaying empire business, uh, I have to say that... There were two motivations for the Falklands in 1982. One was the sheer cheek of somebody coming and taking a bit of something that belonged to us. And I have to say that anybody who's been in London on a Saturday night, and if you see any young men in London, if there's a fight about 400 yards away, it'll be joined by those young men. I'm afraid that spirit still exists in the United Kingdom. If there's a fight, we'll come and help. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the Thatcher government would have, would have fallen within days if we hadn't have reacted, to tell you the truth. Um, so there was a political imperative uh, to do that. And, and that brings us on to the, to the modern issue, really. I think we go back to where we started, Arthur, in many ways, is how do your military leaders express these concerns? You say, if I lose an Ali Burke-class destroyer in the South China Sea, Mr. President, okay, this could lose the Democrats the next election. That, that is the leverage. Uh, and a number of times, our military hmm. leaders have said, look, this is the political implications of you failing to support us either with political will or the resources. I think on the energy front, I think the key axis that we, we have to look at in future is China's relationship with um, what I call the Shia nations in the Middle East. They already have an established relationship based on sanctions busting uh, and a really close relationship between the military and political elites in China and Iran of the energy market in Iran. We see increasing amounts of contracting uh, between the Chinese and the Iraqis. We see Chinese interest and sympathy with maintaining Assad in Syria. And we're beginning to pick up, I think, a real axis of interest across the northern half of the Gulf into the Middle East between the Chinese uh, and the Shia countries. And I think our Sunni partners on the southern side of the Gulf are gonna have to actually find out what this new environment means. When Iran comes out of the closet, as it shortly will, what the implications will be for energy markets. And, and the fact of life is, people say, well, it's, there's going to be a huge amount of oil coming onto the market. Well, actually, the oil's already on the market because of sanctions busting. It's there already, the oil from uh, Iran. That's not going to make a lot of difference. 
But what we are going to see is a huge amount of gas coming onto the market that wasn't there before uh, from Iran. As soon as it can sell that gas uh, on the open market, which it will. But watch out, I think, as part of this Eurasia strategy, there is a specific axis that goes through the Shia nations right through to the Mediterranean and the Four Seas strategy. And in fact, if you heard the, what Assad said in Moscow yesterday, something that uh, appeared on the internet but not on the broadcast was this idea of a four C strategy of which Syria will be the hub. Those four Cs being the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, the Red Sea and the Gulf. And Syria, at a time when he's got a lot of things on his mind at the moment, President Assad, he's thinking about a commercial strategy that ties in the Russians and the Chinese with Syria right at the heart of it. So somebody's thinking beyond the next step. They certainly are. They, and this is, you mentioned the term hub here. One thinks about the United States having reverted to a two-hub strategy in the last decade. Uh, the two hubs being basically uh, both North Atlantic but also the Pacific, and basically abandoning the Mediterranean as a strategic base of operations or even of, 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 uh, of naval interest. Uh, this has been one of the trends which I know uh, that, the, that the Center for American Sea Power is very much concerned about, of finding ways to restore that presence. It's a presence which in many ways, uh, or, or a declining presence, it began when Britain withdrew from Aden, which I think you can really point to as one of the, uh, one of the things, of, one of the disastrous decisions strategically that took place uh, with, with regard to the Royal Navy's retreat from the world. I think there's a lot of worry that what we're seeing right now is an American Navy retreat from the world, one which if not, uh, exact, not sim exactly like that of Great Britain in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, is certainly analogous in the sense that uh, as our force, naval force, shrinks, the number of missions that we can be performed shrink, and as the number of missions shrink, then that encourages more force shrinkage and so on. It becomes a, a never-ending, descending uh, circle of, of, of naval and strategic decline. Do you think that this is a danger for the United States Navy? And do you think that this is uh, a trend which, if it continues here, is only going to guarantee the success for your Eurasian powers, both uh, China and, of course, also Russia? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, how have you got? It's, um, I think the key issue uh, for the United States is what is its ambition at sea? Um, and if its ambition is a strong one, uh, one which says, look, we have to ensure our ability to trade and to have influence around the world, such a, as a globalized country, we have to have access to globalization. You have to invest in the sea. I went to um, a, a seminar with the US Army recently, and I said, look, I, I think the future is going to be the United States as a sea and air power, not a popular uh, In the view. US Army, no. But I said, but I said if you think about it, force will be applied in future in high impact, low footprint, high impact, low footprint doses. And that means that, you know, we're going to have to reduce the number of people, the footprint on the ground at any one time, but increase the impact. That can only be applied by globally accessible and deployable forces. This is great news for the US Marine Corps. It's great news for airborne. It's great news for special forces. It is not great news for mass forces. Until we get 
uh, armies that need to be fixed in position then defeated rather than be defeated from distance. And remember, uh, and this is something I always combat with, uh, with my army friends, is you do not have to hold land to neutralize it for the enemy. You can deny the enemy land as well. You don't have to sit on it. And the big lie that has been brought about by the 20th century is that you have to hold land in order to dominate it. You don't. And the idea that you have to actually be on the ground to bring a, a, a war to a conclusion is a fallacy. If you blockade a country, if you seal it off, you'll starve the population. You don't need any building on the ground. So we've got to deal with this. So denying people access is actually just as valid as holding ground. And that's the world that I see in future. Now, I don't see that the United States was ever strong enough to impose its wall everywhere at any time. However, the maritime world and the free world, if we want to call it that, is in a position to do that. And two things have to happen. There has to be a common maritime strategy for those people that don't sign up to this Eurasian model. And if that's the case, we have to do it together. Uh, and the model that, that uh, I think is quite a good one is um, Mike Mullen's Thousand Ship Navy. We have to say, look, there are some parts of the world where the United States doesn't want to be involved, doesn't need to be involved. So we've got to start doing this uh, together. Um, and the other thing is, we've all been freeloading on the United States since the Second World War. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> Europe has been dreadful, is dreadful, I'm afraid, at actually uh, standing up to uh, the plate. And it is absolutely outrageous, uh, the extent to which 75% of NATO is funded, manned, and equipped uh, by the United States. That is not a partnership, uh, I'm afraid. That is an external flying buttress on the building. Um, and so we've got to do something about that. And what I see happening in future, if I were advising the president today, I would say in the past, you have put together a posse in relation to crises where you as the sheriff have said, I'll take along a, a, a number of second-rate deputies uh, and a few citizens and we'll sort out the bad guys. In future, I think you've got to put more responsibility on regional partners and uh, alliances and say, look, it won't be a posse in future, but I'll send the cavalry if it gets too bad. If the Indians get too strong for you around your particular fort, the cavalry will come. But here's the thing. The cavalry has to come. There cannot be some vague promise uh, that uh, if we get uh, involved with uh, some country to the east of us that has a lot of gas and an objectionable president, okay, that when we get up to our knees in trouble, the cavalry may or may not come. And I'm afraid that was the very discordant message that was sent out over Syria to the, the Arab nations who sought to uh, support the insurgency in Syria. And they are pretty fed up with that. Can't trust the Americans right now. Now, if you ever get to a situation like that, that whole strategy collapses. Most of the European countries rely on Britain and the United States for the nuclear guarantee. France does it for its own national interests, of course. Um, but uh, the, the issue is that if you can actually induce that sense of trust, that sense of dependence, I think people will be braver in their own regions. And it's not just Europe, of course, it's Southeast right. and East Asia. If you build it, will they come? So if we build the security structures in Europe and in Asia, will they come? That's the big question, I think, for the United States. 
you can't do it on your own. You don't want to do it on your own. You certainly can't afford to do it on your own. You've got to corral people to look after their own interests in their areas. Royal Navy was very happy to allow the Western Hemisphere to be looked after by the United States Navy in the 1920s and 30s because we had an alignment of interests and we had an alignment of uh, uh, basically strategic, uh, uh, strategic uh, objectives. And because of that, we could rely on an American ship uh, in um, the Yangtze to look after our interests at the time. Okay? And I've said to the Chinese on many occasions, when the Americans can trust you, the Chinese Navy, with American interests in the East Pacific, there's not going to be a problem. But we've got a long way to go before then. But you've got to demand more from your allies, and I think go to the US cavalry rather than the posse model, and I think you'll find uh, that question Much will disappear. Especially as the threats grow. Yeah. Should we open up questions to audience? Please, I'm sorry, I'm conscious that. Here. Here front, and then uh, we'll go to the back. Sir, George Nicholson with the Global Special Operations Foundation. I was in Canberra during the Falklands, and of course, people don't realize the reason the Australians no longer have an aircraft carrier is <laughs> you all had agreed to sell them the Invincible. So they rapidly. Uh, scuttled warship Melbourne, so they don't have it right now. But in turn, one of the real lessons learned was your lack of an AEW capability. Oh, ouch. That yeah. you didn't, couldn't get the Nimrod down there. And I think what was really impressive is after that occurred, I may be wrong, within two or three months, you were able to take the uh, radar off the Nimrod. You were able to put it on your Sea King helicopter, which gave you a mini AWACS J-STARS capability. You're now going to be putting it on the Merlin, and uh, a few years ago, I was lucky enough down at Norfolk to go on board uh, the uh, Ark Royal when Captain Clank had it. And you can see what a tremendous capability. What I'm getting to is our Navy right now, particularly with the amphibious ready groups, don't have that kind of capability. How much of a challenge do you see that in the future? And what lessons learned that we can see of what you have done of giving us that same kind of capability of putting it on our uh, amphibious ready groups? Well, thanks very much. I mean, can I go back and say the reason we didn't have an airborne early warning capability is because of a statement in 1979 which said we will never be in an anti-air warfare environment without the Americans. <laughs> so we're going to have Hawkeyes. We're okay. We're great. Uh, and so it's these, these decisions uh, where you say, no, uh, those of you familiar with uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, will know there's a really famous statement in, in the story uh, Silver Blaze where he says to Watson, if it's not impossible, it's possible. And I'm afraid that a lot of our strategic planners work on the principle, because I, I don't intellectually think it's going to happen, it won't happen. And the Falklands was never going to happen. In fact, it came out of the blue. And bear in mind that we were configured to flight, fight the Soviets at the time. Uh, and that whole defense review that abolished our carriers, our amphibious capability as well, um, and the AEW and all that sort of thing was all designed to fight and deter the Russians on the Central Front. With the assurance that if we did anything else, the Americans would be there. Uh, and I, you know, I was part of that. Uh, not, not the planning, but actually part of the, of the death squad that would sit in the Iceland Faroes Gap <laughs> had that come to that. Um, but, but the fact of life is that it's very easy to introduce any capability in two circumstances. War is the great innovator. As soon as you need it, boy, it gets there pretty quickly. Uh, believe me, that, that, um, the flash to bang time of that AEW uh, configuration was about six weeks. 
but we had to put it on a helicopter, and that limits its range, so yeah, we didn't have a fixed-wing carrier. But let's just come up to our modern carriers today. Our carrier should have catapults and arrestor wires. It doesn't. We're going for, as you know, the F-35B. We're going for a, a much less sophisticated carrier, which is going to sit between your supercarriers and the little flat tops that we use for amphibious operations. So it's going to have to work out an interesting concept of operations, as you say, with a helicopter-borne uh, airborne early warning system and fairly short legs on, on, its, on, on, its, on its aircraft. And I'm afraid to say that strategy is always a, a tri-cornered fight between policy, what you think you want as a politician, resources, what you can afford, and military practicality. But I'm afraid those decisions are made on the basis of what you would do today not in any future war. So you take risk in peacetime, which you pay for with your sailors' lives and your ships' hulls in wartime. Uh, and you may get it right, you may not. We got it wrong in the Falklands, certainly we got it wrong, but here's the thing, the Falklands was great for the Royal Navy, uh, because actually all the, all the cuts that we were going to face as a result of the 1981 not review suddenly disappeared. Uh, and I would say it saved the Navy for a generation. So. Uh, the really bad news is you need a crisis probably every generation to actually remind politicians and indeed your senior, uh, senior military officers where the risk lies. Because one thing, and forgive me, you're very good at in the United States, if I may say so as a friend, you're fantastic at perfecting the last day of the previous war but not preparing for the first day of the next one. So the first day of the next war looks like the last day of the previous one but brought up to date. So first Gulf War, okay, learn the lessons. First day of the second Gulf War looked exactly how you should have played it on the last day of the previous one. Uh, we have to anticipate. We have to incorporate technology. We have to have contingency plans for saying, this is where our risk is. We need to know about that between friends, and we need to have a contingency for that both technologically and resource terms against the day that risk get its bluff, gets its bluff called. To the back. Sir, my name is Mike Cheney, and I know George Nicholson. I Hi, was Mike. the amphibious operations officer for the Sixth Fleet when you were out flying about in the South Atlantic. And I where were you? And they, we where you. was I? <laughs> we needed you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where I was. I have two questions, sir. First of all, on your spec ops guys, did they have problems with their radios? And if so, I, mean, I know they did. What, what did you do? What have you learned from that? And because the thing that happened on the Fortuna Glacier, could it have been prevented or not? You know, we're not to be retrospect. The second question is, you haven't said anything about intelligence. I still think intelligence is a pretty good thing. And you haven't said hardly, I didn't even hear the word. So yeah, I haven't said anything about Christmas presents either, but I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's the time available. You're absolutely right. Mike, let, let me address that. The problem was not so much with the radios with uh, the, the special forces, it was communications in general. If I tell you that we took the SAS on board at Ascension Island, okay, they didn't speak to us for 10 days, and after that they said, we want to go up onto Fortuna Glacier. And the only thing we knew about our special forces was that they'd done a, the Iranian embassy siege the previous year. For the rest of us, it was some vague, vague sort of thing. We didn't have all these books about SEALs, we didn't have books about Bravo 20 or anything about that, so we knew nothing about these guys. And they suddenly appeared and said, we want to go up on this glacier, 4,000 feet. It's minus 20 up there. It's well above the cloud line. Your aircraft is going to freeze up. Oh, and by the way, you've got 80 to 100 knot catabatic winds. 
And we said, who are you? <laughs> and, and that was the problem, is the interrelationship between the special forces and the regular forces was non-existent in 1982. Yeah, absolutely that. And, uh, you know, they've been in Northern Ireland, they've been in Germany. We hadn't seen them at sea at all. Uh, we just thought they had exceptionally long hair, you know, and spoke with an Irish accent. Why do you do that? Um, so, so that was that. And, and when my second pilot, Stuart Cooper, heard the plan, um, he said, why are we going to do this? And he said, well, and the major commanding the SAS said, well, they won't expect us to come from that direction. Heights of Abraham stuff. And my young 21-year-old second pilot, Scotsman, said, well, they won't expect you to come by Polaris missile either, but there's no good reason to do it. And so it proved. Extremely dangerous operation. You'd never do it in peacetime. As you saw, complete disaster with two of the aircraft lost, and we had to get them out. Um, and, and that was the basic problem. The radios themselves, to be fair, which were satellite-based, um, and burst transmission worked incredibly well, which is how we knew that they were OK. Um, but in terms of cultural communication, absolutely dreadful. Second question, Mike, just remind me, please. Or intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. But I believe in military intelligence, which is why I'm going for a PhD. It's, um, we've got to have more of it. Um, but not just intelligence. We, uh, I, I firmly believe that we have an issue with enemy-centric intelligence. We don't have enough intelligence invested in the situation of which the enemy is a part. Uh, and I believe that the real cultural shift for the armed forces in future is to see the enemy as part of a constantly adapting situation uh, which we have to know everything about if we're going to prevail. Uh, and if we'd have adopted that approach, we'd have done a lot better in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I was just going to say, that would have been it. Um, another question in the back, and then we're going to come forward. Yeah, I'm Raphael Danziger. I'm a consultant uh, to APAC. And my question is to do with the situation of Persian Gulf. Suppose, knowing what you know about the assets that Iran and the United States have in the region, both naval and air assets, what do you think would happen if there is an encounter over sanctions, uh, busting, or any other reason? What would happen militarily in the Gulf? Can happen? I just ask what APAC is, please? APAC is the pro-Israel lobby, the American-Israel Public Affairs thank, Committee. Thank you very much. Just so I know. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Thank you. Um, I, I don't think it's going to come to blows with Iran, except if there is overt pressure on the southern Gulf states from Iran in a military sense. Uh, I don't think that Iran and the United States have sufficient issues to fight about. I think we have to keep an eye on Iran to make sure its nuclear program is doing as it as it says it's going to do over the next 10 years. We also have to limit the amount of interference uh, that Shia Islam is going to play in Sunni countries in the future. I, I think we all recognize that what is happening in Yemen, in Syria, and in Lebanon at the moment are proxy conflicts between Iran and Saudi Arabia, between the champion of Shia and the champion of, of Sunni Islam at the moment. I'm afraid that has got to looking at the demographics, looking at all the other situational features, that, I'm afraid, has got to exacerbate over the next few years. And I think the United States has got to make up its mind uh, whether it's a comprehensive approach to dealing with that region or there are military aspects. My own instinct is that you will want to contain it rather than actually deal with it. Uh, there are going to be other dogs in that fight, China and Russia and Iran itself. Um, but the key issue there is whether Iran, Saudi Arabia, or Turkey is going to dominate the region 
and that is going to fight itself out along with this Sunni Shia thing. I've often said in the past that the three things that Islam hasn't had is a reformation, that's the first thing, an enlightenment, age of reason, and hasn't had a 30 years war yet that we had in Europe between 1618 and 1648. At the end of that, we decided in the Treaty of Westphalia that we wouldn't fight again over religion between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, we wouldn't <coughs> interfere in other states' provision for their people, and the Westphalian system as we call it now. And thirdly, we wouldn't use chemical weapons because the 30 years war was the first systemic use of chemical weapons. So until that 30 years war plays itself out, and all these demographic, political, and social aspirations actually uh, settle down again, uh, my own advice is we stay well clear of it, mitigate the impact, uh, and make sure that our interests outside that area uh, are maintained. With your colossal reserves of oil and gas that you have, you do not need to worry, I, have to, I would suggest, and I'm not an energy specialist, about the price of oil. You just need to deal with the world stability of that price. Uh, and I think you can actually lever that for the future. I'm going to catch the question down front, and then I'm going to catch the question to the back again as well. But your front. Hi, uh, David Isby. Uh, anyone looking at the changes in naval warfare since the Falklands would have to look at the rise of networks and communications, while the evolution of professionalism, training, especially interoperability, uh, NATO, and other standards. How did these interrelate, and which was the more important in the changes we have seen? <laughs> That's a very good question. You're giving me real sort of book-length questions here, guys. But um, the one thing, I, the one thing I, I think I'd like to say about network uh, and communications warfare is that um, I came across a device that is no bigger than this bottle of water about three weeks ago. And if you switch it on, every wireless and mobile signal within 500 meters doesn't work. It's a broad-based jammer. And the one area that everybody forgets, everybody's absolutely hooked around the axle on cyber at the moment, the electromagnetic spectrum is the one thing where we are not expecting to fight in future. I'd say to you, we will have to fight. Just look at the jammers that North Korea deploys against South Korea at the moment, these huge vehicle-based jammers that take out air traffic systems, wireless, everything. Okay, this is the future. And our network systems, if they are not hardened, will become totally disabled in future. Uh, we have to think of a way of hardening them both electronically and physically in future if we are going to prevail. Um, if I were Chinese and Russian now, this is where most of my investment would be going if I wanted to offset the advantage of the Western world. Um, I advise companies at the moment about this. If you put this device, not this bottle of water, but the device I told you about, on the windowsill of a bank and ring them up at 9 o'clock and say, do you want to do any work today? Because if you do, you're going to give me $50,000. They're going to pay. Because the number of transactional losses they will lose as a result of your jammer being on their premises okay, is just not worth them not paying. And that's the equivalent in electromagnetic terms of a distributed denial of service attack right. that you can do on a website. And I'm afraid to say, unless we put all our equipment in a Faraday cage, uh, you're going to see huge systems being deployed to deny us the... Remember what I said to you about holding ground and denying a ground? Take it into the electromagnetic spectrum, and you're into denying ground to people again. It's a forgotten art, I'm afraid, in the Western world, 
the Russians and the Chinese look on the internet, see how many commercial firms are producing this sort of kit, and just think how they're upscaling that for their military at the moment. And a vital part of the Chinese anti-access area denial system is electromagnetic attack. Now, I'll <laughs> stay the right side of you know, what, what I know and what I can tell. I know that American systems are very good in terms of frequency agility and also hardening. I don't have the same confidence for most of the rest of the world naval and air systems <laughs> that are involved at sea. Um, it's something that's coming. Uh, if you can maintain the security of your network and it can dominate the electromagnetic environment, network warfare will work for you. So will b distributed lethality, which I think is a great, great concept, whereby I don't have to carry the weapons necessarily that I will put on target in future. Um, you'll know that SM6, the standard missile, uh, can be fired uh, from its platform against a target that can be directed by certain other platforms, let's not go into it, uh, to hit its target. That has been proven already. Integrate that with unmanned, and you've got a fantastic system to be able to assert sea and air control. If you have it disabled, you have nothing. If you don't have a degraded system, you have nothing. And unless you can build up uh, a hardened system of nodes that can, can operate that, uh, we will be totally disabled. Um, and I'm not seeing the resilience and the hardening put in place uh, to make sure that happens at the moment. Question in the back, fellow standing. Thank you, Libo, Voice of America. Uh, I'd like to ask Admiral two questions related to uh, South China Sea. Uh, <laughs> first, you mentioned doing together, doing with demanding more from the, uh, the, our allies. But since two weeks ago, uh, when it was first reported that U.S. Navy is planning at some, some point to sail within a 12-mile zone of the Chinese artificial islands, none of our allies, except the Philippines, have come forward to either support, voice, you know, openly support, or saying they're going to join us, United States for the patrolling. So why is that? You know, even with the top you know, officials from the Australia government and also from the South Korea government in camp uh, recently, there was no, no words from them on that regard. Uh, secondly, what would a battle in the South China Sea look like, given your experience uh, 30 years ago, uh, given the possibility that the Chinese might take on, on the United States head-on, as some of the generals in Beijing have, have uh, vowed to do so? Okay, right. Thanks. Okay, uh, in the first case, I think Australia signed up to come, isn't it? I think Australians have said they'll send a frigate uh, if you go through. Can I say that strategically, I think announcing what you're going to do two weeks ahead is actually the height of silliness. Why don't you just do it? I mean, I, I do not understand why you would say to the Chinese, we're coming in two weeks, could you get ready, sort out your policy options, uh, and we give you the chance. The whole point of naval warfare is you arrive unexpected and you hit the enemy straight between the eyes. Uh, and if you want to confront the Chinese, you turn up. You don't have to tell them about it. I mean, it's not like a presidential speech where you actually put the content out ahead of actually giving it to see what the reaction's going to be first. It is the height of folly to say this. A great power turns up. It does what it, what it says it does straight away. So that's the first thing. Don't flag it up. Um, it, it totally blunts the message. It also gives you the opportunity, of course, to back out if it gets too rough. And what does that do to you as a great power? You've run away. And the Chinese would just love that. You lose face immediately. Um, but I think the Australians may have signed up to come with you as well. 
Yeah, but the 12 mile zone's irrelevant. You can go up to three miles if you want. You know, there is freedom of the seas. As long as you don't submerge, and I don't mean sunk, I mean if you're a submarine, okay, as long as you don't submerge or you fly combat aircraft, you can, you can sail past right up to the limit. There's no problem at all. It's called innocent passage, and you're allowed to do that. And the fact of life is they are not islands owned by the Chinese either. They're rocks that have been built on. They have no status under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. Um, so the first thing is that America doing it on its own, I think, has political risks because it looks like a confrontation between America and uh, China. What America should be saying is we're asserting the freedom of the seas on behalf of every other country because that's what China is threatening, is the rights of every other country to do that. Um, now, what would a battle in the South China Sea look like? Well, we've done it before. Um, I think what you will see is a range of encounter actions in the South China Sea, one-on-ones, where there will be face-offs. It would be like deer rutting, male deer rutting, I think, and there's just the chance that something may go wrong. So if you're going to go in harm's way, you've got to be confident that you can look after yourself. So you have to go armed, you have to go ready for any eventuality. And you have to have, have the political will and knowledge about consequences. So what I would anticipate is a very limited action if either side chooses to take action um, over something. If the Chinese try to obstruct, then I expect America, the American Navy to say, well, these are international waters, and you are, you are ratifying a party, O China, of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. We are exerting our right under that. Slightly weaker case because, of course, America hasn't signed China the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, <laughs> even though you, of course, abide by its provisions. And by the way, I don't think you should ratify it right now because everybody else is cheating. Um, but, but the fact of life is, unless you are prepared to go head to head and live with the consequences and have worked out what those consequences might lead to, okay, you should still do it anyway, because that's what uh, globalization and the international law of the sea demands. We've got time for one more question here in front. Oh, Did I you have a question? Thank you. Go as long as you uh, like. Oh, I don't need this. I was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, to thank you for an outstanding presentation. Thank you. You have the gift of being informative without being outspoken. <laughs> thank you. Uh, in the last. Uh, few years, just in this century, it's been suggested that the division, land division, either Army or Marines, is uh, operationally inefficient and a mistake, and that the largest operational unit should be a brigade. Do you have any comments on that, please? Thank you. Well, I, I always think that forces should be scaled to the objectives that you as a country wish to achieve. Um, and as a great power, America should have the ability to find, fix, and strike any opponent that can actually attack uh, its vital interests. And so whether it's the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, or the Marine Corps, you have to have forces that are able to do that in environments in which you have to operate. Now, I have to say, uh, and it's not just because I'm here, I'm a real cheerleader for the US Marine Corps. Uh, and when I was talking to the Army, as I said to you recently, they came up with all sorts of ideas about what they wanted to be in the future. And they said, what do you think? And I said, well, I've got really bad news for you. The United States Marine Corps is already there. Um, and all this to do with agility, to do with increased firepower, lower footprint, all this sort of thing. 
And I said, we really have to make up our minds, I think, what sort of impact that we wish our armed forces to have. Now, I'm not a great believer for putting lots of forces on the ground just for being on the ground, as you've probably gathered. They have to have impact. So whether it's Marine Corps or Army, they have to scale, be scaled to do the impact that the country requires. We're not in the business of stopping a mass army in Europe at the moment. We could stop it, but we don't have to put tanks, armoured vehicles necessarily in the way to do that. We can deny uh, the manoeuvre of that sort of force quite well. And, by the way, we've got nuclear weapons, which everybody forgets in this mix. We have the ultimate deterrent if we have to use it. Um, what we have to do is work out in the, the real world today uh, what the unit of impact is. And you're right. You know, in both the Army with the brigade combat teams and, of course, with the MEBs uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps, that has been defined, if you like, as the unit of impact. But what I used to say with our uh, Marine Brigade is if you add all the other indirect systems that come into it, you have a scalable uh, use of force all the way up to core level. For example, if you put my Naval Task Group together with uh, our Marine Brigade, you actually have a division's worth of firepower and impact and quite a lot of manoeuvre as well. And one of the things that I was trying to develop was using the ships as the fighting platforms. So you had a third of your force ashore, a third recuperating and resting, a third preparing for combat, and you had a rolling combat along a, a coastline with all the indirect systems, including loitering, crews, unmanned, all the other weapon systems to provide that fighting group with their indirect fire as well. So they didn't have to take their artillery with them, for example. You had a whole weight of stuff coming from, from sea as well. And those are the sort of techniques that we're going to have to develop in future. Now, I happen to think, um, and again, this is another book-length answer, I'm afraid, is that quite a lot of our division, brigade, company structures come about because of mass firepower required during the Napoleonic Wars. You think about it, they all come from you know, the start of the 19th century. Whether you call it a brigade or anything, in future we're going to have forces amassed in, in, a, in almost a modular way uh, to actually relate to the situation in which they find themselves. Now, I think a brigade or a division is a unit of administration nowadays. It's not a unit of impact, and we're going to be putting stuff together in future, collapsing it again, almost communities of interest, if you like, uh, and putting these things together. That's what I think. Uh, that's how I think it will go in future. And that's going to give the premium to small teams that are bolted to... Do you have Lego over here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's what I call the Lego brick approach. Uh, and, um, and I think in future we'll find that our particularly our landed forces, will be of the Lego brick variety. It's convenient for administrative terms to have expeditionary striking groups at the moment in the current world. I wouldn't fight an expeditionary uh, uh, striking group in wartime, oddly enough. Thank you. I failed to introduce myself. My name is Ross Duckworth. I'm a consultant for the Defense Department. Okay, thank you. Good. And guess what? We're out of time. Okay, thank We're you. We're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank you for what's been a really very interesting and illuminating discussion. I don't think there's anyone in the room who doesn't hope that you come back again very soon. Me too. Thank you. Thank you.